Hey guys, welcome to the Legendary Tales podcast. I am your host, Adam Bloor. And I am your other host, Isadora martin Day. This is the podcast where we talk about cryptids, legendary events, legendary places, legendary people, just all things legendary. Woohoo! And it seems like we're doing certainly more real-life legendary the last couple of weeks. Yeah, which has been kind of nice, I yeah. think. Um, we'll have to go back to something more creepy next week. I think we will. Yeah, this is just like the start of our marathon because we've got to record three episodes this week. Yeah, so Adam is celebrating post-lockdown by going to visit, I guess, kind of my stepfather. Sort of. In the south of France. Um, and he's celebrating by going somewhere sunny. So we're recording three episodes in three days. Although you guys will get them in three-week periods. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then they'll be at the normal interval so you guys won't have to worry. And then by the time I get back, we'll just be on normal scheduling again. Hopefully. Or else we never see Adam again. And <laughs> yeah, and I'm get, gonna have to learn how to do this via Zoom. I get locked down permanently in France. And we will worst, do this via Zoom. Worst places to get locked down. That's I think true. This week we decided to talk about aviation mm-hmm. legends. I believe that you are kicking it off. I am. So go and for it. I uh honestly I don't know why we picked I, I think it was me that picked it. It's because Amelia Earhart was really yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. So I ended up doing something really similar. That's fine. Which is Howard Hughes. Okay. Who That's a name that I recognize, but I couldn't pull that information out of my pocket if someone asked me. I knew nothing other than I briefly remember watching the Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, movie. the aviator. Yes. That's about Howard Hughes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I briefly the, remember watching that. The only thing I remember about Howard Hughes then is that he crashed into a beet field in that movie and was covered in beet juice and everyone thought he was bleeding. Oh, but he well, wasn't. you see what's really weird is that is nowhere in my notes. <laughs> Maybe I because I went from the real life one versus the cinematic <laughs> I, one. I can't imagine that there was anything different. Um, <laughs> really, I was going to go down the only thing I really remembered from that movie slash memes and things like that, which is the Spruce Goose. Okay. which was like his most famous airplane. Mm-hmm. So I was going to go down that route. Mm-hmm. Only I found out that he is way more interesting than just that plane. Okay. Which should have been a clue because Leonardo DiCaprio was in... A very good movie. A really good movie about him. Mm-hmm. So I should have realized that his life was perhaps more interesting than just aviation. Yeah. But um, we're going to talk about him focusing on his aviation because honestly, I could have gone down like 50 different rabbit holes yeah. on this one. He was a truly extraordinary human, for better and for worse. <laughs> and he's definitely like a legend. He's yeah. human. He's flawed. True crimey. Ooh. He has all manner of, I mean, there was nothing, no. nothing that he wasn't involved in. <laughs> Great. So anyway, uh, Starting with his legendary status, he appears to have popped into being because no one can find a legitimate birth record for him. Really? Yeah. Hmm. They know who he was, who his father were, what parents were. They don't know. There seems to be some controversy as to whether he when, what month, or even year he was born in. Okay. What do you know? Do we know how old he was when he died? Seventy when he died. Okay. They think. Okay. And they, it appears that they don't know whether he was born. On the 24th of September, or it could have been the 24th of December. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not really sure. Either way, he was born to into this family that already was fairly wealthy. Mm-hmm. But more importantly than that, I guess, was also like very uh, engineeringly minded. Yep. They were definitely a tech family. His father had patented something called the two-cone ro- roller bit. 
which allowed for rotary drilling for petroleum in previously inaccessible places. Mm. So basically, you can imagine how much money they had when he was born, just based on the fact that his father invented something. For oil (laughs) drilling. Oil drilling. And he leased the oil company the bits, not sold them the bits. So apparently that was like a really shrewd decision. Mm. He also had a background or a touch into film because his uncle was a guy named Robert Hughes, Rupert Mm -hmm. Hughes, who was apparently a famed novelist, screenwriter, and film director. Okay. Howard Hughes was also legit genius. Mm -hmm. At 11 years old, he built Houston's first wireless radio transmitter. And at 12, he also was identified as the first boy in Houston to have a motorized bike because he took parts from his father's steam engine and made it into a motorized bike. Hmm. So he was like... Yeah. Uh, Both his parents had died by the time he was 19. He was emancipated. He inherited all their money. It gave him a pretty much lifelong interest in the medical industry as well. And he... Really, like, I cannot figure out how he managed to do this, all the stuff he managed to do and all the women he managed to bed. <laughs> um, he what was a legend. Plus, he was a par golfer. Was he? Scratch golfer? Scratch golfer. Wow. Which is interesting because my husband is an avid golfer who runs a website, YouTube thing called The Swingdom plug. and would dream plug. of being... Yeah, plug, plug. plug. And would dream of being a scratch golfer. Um, He played all around Los Angeles. And uh, so amongst all of his other stuff, he somehow managed to... Be very good at golf. Be very good at golf. More power to you. Yeah, right. In 1929, he divorced his wife, Ella. And he moved to LA to do a lot of different stuff, including Betty Davis, Ava Gardner, uh, Catherine Hepburn, Hedy Lamar, Ginger Rogers, uh, Janet Lee, Rita Hayworth. Wow. Uh, every single gorgeous goddess mm. you can imagine of the like late 20s, early 30s. And also, what I thought was really interesting is that he wasn't, apparently he wasn't really an, a douchebag. Mm. Like, I kind of assumed, I really don't remember much about the movie, um, but I kind of assumed he was a huge douchebag. That, that movie only really focuses on like his mental breakdown, doesn't it? Yeah, his, like, I guess so. With, with... And he does, I mean, spoiler alert, his <laughs> mental breakdown is fairly it's massive, huge and famous. But like things like later on when he divorced one of his other wives, or it might have been this wife, I can't remember. One, so he divorced a wife and he didn't put in a, a gag order on her. Hmm. Like, neither of them ever, she said she was never going to betray his confidence. He gave her a decent amount of money every year. Like, he managed to divorce very Easily. amicably. Well, all right. Um, <laughs> and, like, Jean Tierney, who is, I didn't really know who she was, so I looked her up. She is beyond stunning movie star of that period. Like, he remained good friends with her, and who apparently was quoted as saying, I don't think Howard could love anything that didn't have a motor in it. <laughs> but later, when Tierney as daughter Daria was born with another uh, another man's daughter was born deaf and blind and with a severe learning difficulty um, because of Tierney being re- exposed to rubella during her pregnancy. Hughes actually was paid for all the best medical care, paid for all oh. the expenses for her daughter. He once hit on Jane Russell. Okay. Um, and he was apparently absolutely like mortified afterwards because she was married and like apologized and said it would never happen again. He really does seem like yeah. on a, on a women front. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. He was a playboy. Yeah. But he does seem like a 
relatively decent human being mm-hmm. for this period. And I, let's qualify for this period. Mm. He doesn't seem like the biggest douchebag that ever existed. Mm. So in 1925, he married Ella, who he divorced four years later. They moved to the Ambassador Hotel, beginning, by the way, his like lifelong thing of living in hotels, where he proceeded to learn to fly a Waco? Waco? W-A-C-O? Yeah. It's Waco, I think. Uh, while simultaneously producing his first movie pi- motion picture. Okay. Called Swell Hogan. We're going to tell you a bit about his movies. Because, like I said, I'm going to mainly talk about his aviation, because that's why we're here this week. Mm. But it's worth putting in context of everything else. He produced a movie, two movies called Everybody's Acting and Two Arabian Kings, which were financial successes. The latter one winning the first Academy Award for Best Director of a Comedy Picture. He also produced The Racket and The Front Page, which were also nominated for Academy Awards. He spent $3.5 million to make the flying film Howl's Angels. It received one Academy Award. He produced Scarface, oh. which a production delay was caused because everyone was so concerned by its violence. Huh. Um, he produced a movie called The Outlaw, which featured Jane Russell. Of yep. I Hit On You and I'm Sorry fame, <laughs> who received considerable attention from film industry censors, mostly because her costumes were more revealing than any other at the time. <laughs> By the end of 1954, he t- nearly gained total control of his production of this film company that he started buying out at a cost of $24 million, uh, becoming the first sole owner of a major Hollywood studio since the silent film era. <laughs> Less than a year later, he walked away from it and sold it having made $6.5 million in personal profit alone. Wow. So we're going to go into one of his films because it kind of falls into the crime category a little later. Mm-hmm. But like his films were successful. Yeah. Everything he did was successful. Everything he touched was gold. Yeah, pretty much. Um, okay, so then he was also really into real estate. So his three big loves were movies, property, and flying. Okay. Um, he was really into real estate. He amassed vast holdings of underdeveloped land in Las Vegas and the surrounding desert. He also purchased the North Las Vegas Air Terminal. He was staying in the Desert Inn and apparently fell out with the guy who owned it, so he bought the whole, whole, whole hotel. <laughs> he spent a total of over $300 million on properties in Las Vegas. He, amongst other hotels at the time, had bought the Desert Inn, the Sands, the Frontier, Castaway's Landmark, and Harold's Club in Reno. He also built, bought the Silver Slipper Casino, which he bought for the sole purpose of moving its trademark neon Silver Slipper onto another side of the building because it was visible from his bedroom in another hotel he owned and he didn't <laughs> like it keeping him awake at night. He also went on to become the largest employer in Nevada because he owned all these casinos. Yeah. Did he uh, develop property or did he just buy it? And buy then, it. Buy it. Buy it. He bought it. He bought it. He bought it. <laughs> he bought it and developed it. Okay. Um, he made tons of money from real estate. Yeah. He didn't. It actually doesn't look like he sold a lot. Once he had it. Once he had it, he just kept hold of it. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, hotels in Nevada and Las yes. Vegas are probably going to remain yeah. profitable, aren't they? And he had this company that he'd set up, um, which was called. Long because it's a bit further ahead of my notes, but it's relevant as we're talking right now. Okay, he had a a charity that he set up that was called the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Okay. And it was formed with the goal of basically trying to understand the genesis of life itself. Hmm. However, it was certainly in the beginning, 
viewed just as a tax haven for his personal fortune. He transferred almost everything. He was the sole trustee and he transferred most of his property, Hughes aircraft and everything into it in essentially making it into a tax exempt charity Mm. and stuff. And in 1969, representative Wright Patman complained that the Hughes Foundation was a tax evasion device, noting that the Institute spent only 5.7 million on its operations during a period which Hughes, Hughes aircraft alone accumulated 76.9 million in profits. <laughs> um, yes. Okay. He actually, actually, because of this, they reformed tax law so that he had to, so for, to stop people being able to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and he challenged it all the way to the right White House. Because wow. just like our friend uh, Emily Emile, God, Amelia God, Earhart. Earhart. He was friends with the Roosevelts, mm. but mainly their they might son. Have, they might have known each other. I'm sure they did. Mainly his son. All right. Let's talk about airplanes, because that's why we're here. Love airplanes. See, I don't. <laughs> uh, my I'd rather fly in a in, uh, in my topic. Yes, after, I would so much rather fly in a blimp. <laughs> after than an doing the research. Um, although this was like golden age of aircraft. Mm-hmm. Which means everyone was dying, but if you managed to survive, you did so in style. <laughs> uh, okay, so the Hughes Aircraft Company was a major American aerospace and defense contractor formed uh, in 1932 by Howard Hughes um, as a division of Hughes, Hughes Tool Company, which was his dad's company mm-hmm. that he'd set up for the drill bit things. It, I mean, we're going to go into some of the stuff it made, but it did everything that you could imagine that put something in space. Yeah. He did it okay. in this company. At the start of the war, Hughes Aircraft only had four full-time employees. By the end, they had 80,000 full-time employees. <sighs> During the war, the company was awarded contracts to build B-25 struts, centrifuge cannons, and machine gun feed chutes. Um, after the war, however, that number dropped back down to 1947. Uh, 800 people by 1947, mm-hmm. but still huge company. It wasn't all plain sailing for him for many different reasons, and you don't grow that rapidly without certainly at this point greasing a few palms yeah. and making some enemies. Mm-hmm. He, in total, survived four plane accidents. Uh, one in a Thomas Morse scout while filming Howl's Angels, one while setting the airspeed record in the Hughes Racer, and then the two that we'll go into a little bit more detail, which is the one at Lake Mead in 1943, and the near-fatal crash of the Hughes XF-11 in 1946. He set many world records and commissioned many custom airplanes, so very like Amelia Earhart. Mm-hmm. Um, also like Amelia Earhart, or unlike Amelia Earhart, on July 14, 1938, he set the world record by completing a flight in just around the world in 91 hours. Wow. Um, three days, 19 hours, and 17 minutes. They're very specific about it there. You have to be. He had actually managed to get to this kind of point without being famous. Mm -hmm. But then he started dating Catherine Hepburn and completed this world thing. And as we discussed last week, people have a, at this point, flying an airplane around the world was about as famous as you can Yeah, like a... a And they throw him a tickled tape parade in the Canyon of Heroes. That's the one. There we go. All big full circle foreshadowing last week. (laughs) Um, It's a callback, isn't it? Yeah, callback. (laughs) He received many awards as an aviator, including the Harmon Trophy, the Collier Trophy, 
blah, 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 blah. And the Special Congressional Gold Medal in 1939 in recognition of the achievements in advancing the science of aviation and thus bringing great credit to his country throughout the world. Mm. Just, you know, as you do. <laughs> okay, here's some of the planes he made. Well, not planes he made, but here's some of the interesting planes he made because he made a lot of them. The Boeing Model 307 mm. was an American commercial transport aircraft that entered service in 1938. It was the first one to offer a pressurized cabin. Okay. So it allowed you to cruise at a higher altitude yep. and well above many more weather disturbances. He didn't actually help deliver this, but uh, create it, but he was the first person to buy one. The Boeing 307? Yeah. <laughs> um, it went, then went on to become Pam, Pam Am's, yeah. like... Flagship. Yeah, big thing. Um, he, however, did adjust his a little bit. Um, and he was getting ready to make another around-the-world attempt on this, mm -hmm. in this plane, uh, when Nazi Germany invaded Poland and everything just changed. Yeah. So he he this is like that was like really the defining moment up until that point planes were really kind of his luxury hobby mm -hmm. that was when suddenly everything changed and he started to be able to make really really big money out of it mm -hmm. the sikorsky s43 baby clipper was a twin-engined amphibious aircraft manufactured uh, in the united states during the 1930s they, the aircraft went to two private owners, Harry, Harold Vanderbilt and Howard Hughes. Just to throw it out Just to drop a Vanderbilt. Yeah, just drop, drop a name. Vanderbilt. I read a really cool blog that some guy from something called the Fantasy of Flight Museum in Florida um, actually managed to buy Howard Hughes's plane. Oh. And it was a really cool blog because he'd been obviously trying to buy it for a long time. Yeah. He was just so thrilled. Did he to buy it from like it. his estate or a museum? I or... think it had gone through a few hands before he got okay. to it, but it's particularly famous because it is his first fatal accident. Ah. Um, in the spring of 1943, Hughes spent nearly a month in Las Vegas test flying his Sikorsky S-43 amphibian aircraft, practicing the touch-and-go landings on Lake Mead in preparation for flying the H-4 Hercules, which was the Spruce Goose. Okay. So this was what he was learning to fly mm -hmm. so that he could learn to fly the Spruce Goose, okay. which was like this plane butt on crack. Okay. Um, the weather conditions at the lake during the day were ideal, and he enjoyed Las Vegas at night. So he literally like partied all night and flew this plane during the day. Sweet. I know. He had a really cool life. On May 17th, 1943, he flew it from California carrying two CAA aviation experts, two of his employees, and Ava Gardner. Um, Hughes dropped Gardner off in Las Vegas and proceeded to Lake Mead to conduct the qualifying tests. The test flight did not go well. It crashed, killing CAA inspector Seiko Klein and Hughes employee Richard Felt. Hughes suffered a severe gash on the top of his head when he hit the upper control panel and had to be rescued by others on board. Retrieved in the 31st of July 2011, Hughes initially tried to pay uh, divers 100000 to try and ra raise the aircraft. Whoa. And he later then spent more than another $500,000 trying to raise this aircraft. Couldn't really figure out whether it says retrieved July 2011. Then it says he tried to pay a whole load of people to raise, or he paid divers to raise the aircraft. 
I think what must have happened is he failed and it had to be raised a bit later. But it feels like if he'd been left down there from 1943 through to 2011, mm -hmm. there might not be a whole lot left for the excited blog owner of Fantasy Flight, mm -hmm. whatever, to do it. Anyway. Hmm. So that was his first, like, people died accident. His next one was in the Hughes XF11. I got a lot of this information from a website called checksix.com, which I've never heard of before, but it was put in language that I understand because a lot of what I read for this was like super airplane geek talk. And uh, I yes. did not know. It was yeah. <laughs> trying, to, trying to explain to me what went wrong, and I had no idea. So the Hughes XF-11 was a prototype military reconnaissance aircraft designed and flown by Howard Hughes and built by Hughes Aircraft for the United States Army. Although they were ordered in 1943, only two prototypes and mock-up were completed. During the first flight, he crashed it. Mm -hmm. On July 7th, 1946, uh, she was readied for her maiden flight with Howard Hughes himself behind the controls. Although it was planned to only be a short 20-minute flight, Hughes amended the plan after takeoff to include an aerial tour of the Los Angeles but basin to show off his aircraft to everyone. <laughs> After a series of test maneuvers, Hughes began his return to the factory airport in Culver City when the right engine propeller control ran out of oil due to an undetected leak. The rear portion of the propeller kicked into a flat pitch like in a flat pitch like indoor ceiling fans and forced one of the sets of blades to cease working. This also caused the aircraft to yaw terribly from the drag of the limp propeller created. Mm -hmm. He radios his difficulties back to the airport, stated that he was going to land. He made a choice at this point, as opposed to bailing out to try and save the aircraft. Having decided to save his $8 million aircraft in 1940-whatever. Although probably wouldn't have set him back too much. And he also didn't want to endanger those in life on the ground below him. I have to say, quite a lot of these came out of, like, he really did... He really wasn't a bad guy, and actually it made me feel really bad because what I knew about him was he went crazy, and I didn't have a whole lot of sympathy, which sounds awful, because mm. I assumed. But he actually seems like he was not a horrible, awful guy, except for you know the murder that we'll talk about in a minute. And he decided to try and make an emergency landing on the Los Angeles County uh, Country Club golf course. Mm -hmm. But his luck had run out, and he dove downward short of the golf course into a Beverly Hills neighborhood. Mm. At 7.20 in the evening, he struck three homes in Beverly Hills, destroying one in a burst of flames. Crowds came from miles to see the spectacle. The resulting crash crushed his collarbone, broke six of his ribs, damaged his lungs severely, and he suffered third-degree burns on his hands. He was rushed to a nearby hospital, then transferred to a Good Samaritan hospital in Los Angeles, where he required the use of an oxygen tent for several days, while being visited by the who's who's of Hollywood's fame and fortune of the time. The newspapers printed the daily progress of Hughes' recovery, um, during which time he directed the during which time while he was dying, he directed that the remaining XF11 prototype be refitted with a single pair of propellers, thus ensuring it would never happen again. Hmm. Now, I read uh, quite a few different newspaper articles. He had like a fifty-fifty shot. This was this was a really bad accident. Um, however. History Through a House, which is the other podcast we did, I did an article on the Arga, which is a really famous British cooker, cooker oven. oven. And 
it turns out it came about because the inventor of that, who was a Nobel Prize winning physicist, had got involved in an explosion. He was at home after he lost his sight and and heard how difficult it was for his wife to cook on the cooker. Mm -hmm. So he invented a cooker that was easier for her. Hughes spent a lot of time in a hospital bed. And he realized how difficult the hospital bed was for both him as a patient and the staff was. So he called in plant engineers to design a customized bed equipped with hot and cold running water, built in six sections and operated by 30 electric motors with push button adjustments. The hospital bed was designed by him specifically to alleviate the pain that he was feeling with his severe burns. And although he never knew, used the bed that he designed, it is a prototype for the modern hospital bed. Okay. He, uh, his, Recovery was miraculous, but actually what he did for hospital beds, uh, which may sound like a silly little invention mm -hmm. compared to all the airplanes and stuff that we've talking about, but from a day-to-day -day basis of how it's affecting people's lives. Yeah, pretty having Yeah, having a bed that's actually comfortable and can be adjusted for each individual patient's needs is a huge thing and, and something I think that more people should know about him. However, out of this came his long-term dependence on opiates. So he started to use codeine as a painkiller, while some people assert that he recovered the hard way with no sleeping pills or no opiates of any time. Uh, they also think he started to use drugs intravenously at this point. He also uh, is well known for his trademark mustache, mustache, and that was actually to hide a scar on his upper lip from this accident. Mm. Okay, so as you do when you're a genius, you come out of the hospital room and you start building another plane. Mm -hmm. So what he started now was called the Hughes H4 Hercules, otherwise known as the Spruce Goose, which was his most famous plane, which was his most famous plane by like a long way, and also his most controversial. Okay. The aircraft was the brainchild of Henry Kaiser, a leading Liberty shipbuilder and manufacturer. He teamed up with Hughes to create what would become the largest aircraft ever built. It was designed to carry 150,000 pounds, 75 fully equipped troops, or two ton, or two 30 ton M4 Sherman tanks. Okay. It was contracted in 1942 by the US government, and they asked for three to be constructed in two years. Seven different configurations were covered, considered. Um, the final design chosen was a behemoth, and it eclipsed any large transport then built before then. It was to be made of wood to converse, to conserve metal because metal and aluminum were aluminium were wartime scarce wartime materials. And although it was named the Spruce Goose, which by the way, apparently Hughes just hated that nickname. Although it was named the Spruce Goose and apparently Hughes hated that nickname, um, it was actually made out of like ash or birch or something. <laughs> <laughs> Pointless, pointless digression. Okay, 18 months later, development was still dragging on, and they were supposed to be getting two, two, three of these made in two years. Yeah. Uh, 16 months in, Kaiser quit because he said that his insistence on perfection was uh, delaying it. An airplane. Yeah. He kind of wanted it to be perfect. He'd nearly died a couple of times. Yeah. He kind of, I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah. Although I imagine the government who wanted to be able to ship their troops quicker and faster around the world were probably not as okay with it. <laughs> About 18 months after it got commissioned, a house-moving company transported the airplane on th uh, to 
Pier E in Long Beach, California. It moved in three large sections, the fuselage in each wing. And a fourth, smaller shipment with tail assembly parts. After the Hughes aircraft completed the, completed the final assembly, they then erected a hangar around it. Yeah, that makes sense. So they built the building around the plane. Because the plane was so big. Because the plane was too big to be able to fit into any building. Um, with a ramp to launch it into the harbor, because it was a water plane. Yeah. In 1947, he got called by the Senate War Investigating Committee because he had been using so many government funds to make this one. <laughs> it was either five stories tall with a wingspan longer than a football field, American football, I assume, more than a city block. And this is what he said. Now I put the sweat of my life into this thing. I have my reputation all rolled up into it. And I have stated several times that if it is a failure, I will probably leave this country and never come back. Hmm. I mean it. All in all, the development for the plane was $32 million, which would now be equivalent to more than $300 million. So during the middle of all of this Senate hearing, he actually went back to California to test by it. They begin the test with Hughes at the control. He brings a few people up with him. They also had seven invited guests from the press corps and seven industry representatives. He managed to get off the ground for 26 seconds. However, uh, the brief flight, main, he had achieved what's called ground effect, um, which proved that the now unneeded masterpiece was flight worthy. Mm -hmm. So it flew for about one mile. Okay. A ground effect is apparently the aerodynamic drag that an aircraft's wings generate when they are close to a fixed surface. It's that feeling you get as you're about to land where you suddenly feel like the plane is floating. Okay. Do you know, you've not really been on a ton of planes. No. But there's like a moment right before you land where it suddenly like jolts up almost and then you land. Yeah. And that is, I guess, where the... Just it, pressure pushing up yeah. from the, the runway. So apparently if you can get past that, a plane can fly. It proves that a plane can fly. It doesn't seem like enough, but okay. I mean, I'm sure people much smarter than me have said that, yeah, that's fine, but that just doesn't seem like enough. Um, no, but apparently it was enough to okay. prove that this thing was a success. Consequently, the case was dropped, I think. The Senate hearing. The Senate hearing. He, or, I don't think it was dropped. I think it was a few things. They took him to task over that. It was like Howard Hughes versus the US government. Yeah. Um, and he got taken to task with a few of those things. However, the H-4 never flew again. Its lifting capacity and ceiling were never tested. A full-time crew of 300 workers, all sworn to secrecy, maintained the aircraft in flying condition in its climate-controlled hangar um, until after Hughes died in 1976. It mm. just... Sat there. Sat there. It cost $300 million in today's money to build. It never flew more than a mile, and it sat in a hangar. And this is why it's such a famous uh, mm -hmm. airplane, because it was just... I guess it would be like if they built the Titanic and never launched her, which might have been a good thing. <laughs> or, or a better idea. Yeah. And maybe the Spruce Goose based on... And one of the guys, apparently, when Hughes got given this commission, was like, seriously, you're giving him the commission? <laughs> He's not exactly done great <laughs> until now with yeah. his not dying plane stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, with his planes, yeah. Yes. Um, that wasn't all he did. He developed a guided air-to-air -air missile, 
um, called the MX-789, which soon gave way to the supersonic MX-904 in 1947. It was one of the first uh, semi-active radar homing systems. They built the world's first geosynchronous communication satellite, followed by the first geosynchronous weather satellite. Later that, and that was in 1963, uh, 1966, later in 1966, Surveyor 1 made the first soft landing on the moon as part of the Project Apollo to land people on the moon. He's also built Pioneer Venus in 1978, which performed the first extensive radar mapping of Venus and the Galileo probe that flew to Jupiter in the 1990s. Uh, the company, so not Hughes himself because obviously he passed away, but the company has built nearly 40% of commercial sats, uh, satellites in service. So as a company, we talked about like a couple of the big crashes and failures, but really it was... Yeah, successful. Yeah. It, going back to Hughes being a kind of good guy, in 1972, during the Cold War, he was approached by the CAA uh, to help secretly recover the Soviet submarine K-129, which had sunk in Hawaii four years earlier. He actually, it was, it was a whole thing here about how it was a massive of failure. But they did use, he lent his name and all his uh, resources to the operation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only after his company got burgled that his involvement with it, they, they took some private papers and yeah. his involvement came out with it after that. All right. Now, because this is supposed to be not just me reading facts out about people's lives, although he has a fascinating life, let's talk about some of his biggest and creepiest and baddest failures. Mm-hmm. Not just deaths. On July 11th, 1936, Hugh struck and kill, Hugh struck and killed a pedestrian named Gabriel S. Meyer with his car on the corner of 3rd Street in Lorraine in Los Angeles. After the crash, he was taken to the hospital and certified as sober. But many people made note of the fact that he'd been drinking before this, and a witness said that he had been driving erratically, going too fast and swerving. Um, and that Maya, who he'd hit, had been standing in the safety zone of a streetcar. Mm. He was booked on suspicion of negligent homicide and held overnight in jail. Helpfully at that point, the witness changed his story and claimed that Maya had stepped out in front of the car. Uh, huh. Hughes was found to be sober. Um, Interesting. I wonder how much that cost. And Hughes was blameless uh, in his death. He told reporters outside, I was driving slowly and a man stepped out of the darkness in front of me. Make of that what you will. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a bit sus. Here's the movie that I said we'd go back to, which is The Conqueror, which apparently is John Wayne playing Genghis Khan. Mm. It sounds like a terrible idea. It sounds terrible. And apparently... We're not the only ones to think that. It was considered one of the worst movies ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hughes apparently was really de- felt horribly awful about all of this. And when it was bought, he uh, when it was released, he bought up every single copy of it <laughs> and watched it on repeat in his house. But the reason for that was not the terribleness of it. The real reason why he had a real issue with it was that part of the film was actually shot in, and it's used as a reason for his breakdown, or it's used as an example of his breakdown, was that he would watch this film on repeat. Because um, this is as he slowly starts to I think break I down. I actually remember that in the movie, in The Aviator, maybe. Yeah, at one point in real life, he actually shuts himself in a cinema room for four months. Mm-hmm. He stayed in this darkened room, never leading, leaving. He ate only chocolate bars, chicken, and drank milk. 
and he was surrounded by dozens of Kleenex boxes that he continuously stacked and rearranged. The reason why he was so obsessed with this film is actually that parts of the film were shot in Utah, and it was downwind of the government's Nevada National Security Site where they'd been doing nuclear fallout testing. And he'd been really, really against this. Like mm. he had fought it really, really, really hard with a lot of money, mm. the nuclear testing in Nevada, because he had a lot of property there. And yeah, yeah. So the filming was downwind from this. The government had actually uh, assured residents and everyone that there was no problem with it and mm -hmm. there was no hazards. So they did do the shooting there. And actually when they needed to recreate some scenes back in Los Angeles, he, Hughes, paid for a whole load of dirt to be shipped into there to Los Angeles for the filming. Utah dirt? Yes, because he wanted the right color clay dirt uh -huh. to match. Uh, to match. Um, the director died of cancer seven years after the film released. One of the stars was diagnosed in kidney cancer. Um, all in all, the cast and crew totaled 220 people. By the end of 1980, 91 of those had developed some form of cancer. Mm -hmm. Many of the people that had visited the set had developed cancer. Um, those that worked on this movie when it had come back to LA and the dirt had come back, developed cancer. Robert Pendleton said, with these numbers, the case could qualify as an epidemic. The connection between the fallout radiation and cancer in individual cases has been practically impossible to prove conclusively. But in a group this size, you'd expect only some 30 cancerous cancers to develop. With 91 cases, I think the tie into the exposure on the set of the Conqueror would hold up in a court of law. Did it ever go to court? They considered it. Hughes apparently said he would help finance it, mm -hmm. but everyone said that they didn't have a case, that, that they really didn't think they had a case to stand on. Um, I imagine now there would have been a serious yeah. class action lawsuit. I think it was just a different, different time. Also, none of those statistics... Uh, include the Native Americans that were extras on the film. Mm -hmm. um, so there was obviously, obviously, a, more, obviously yeah. a lot more than that. It was one of the major things, they, the guilt of this, they reckon yeah. is one of the major things, even though it happened in like the 30s. Yeah. Um, as he started to slowly develop more and more mental health issues, the guilt of this film and the number of people that died because of his decision to shoot there really weighed heavily on mm -hmm. him. Even though you could say it was the government's fault, not his. Very easily say it's the government's fault. Yes. Uh, he ate the same thing every day, which sounded pretty good. A medium rare New York strip steak with a dinner salad and peas. Only eating the smaller peas, he didn't want to eat the larger ones, he'd push them aside. He would only eat breakfast eggs the way his family cooked lilies to make them. And as everyone knows, he started becoming super phobic and super OCD about stuff. Mm -hmm. He would go for weeks and months without cutting his hair and nails. And actually, now they think this might have been due to a disease called allodynia, which results in a pain response to stimulus that would not have normally caused pain. Hmm. So the nearest I could find to it is when you have sunburn mm -hmm. and water falling on your back would not normally can yeah. be a pain response. But when you have sunburn, suddenly it's the most painful thing that's ever happened to you. Mm -hmm. And it's often caused by blows to the head or physical things. And obviously, mm. these two plane crashes had both left him severely injured. Uh -huh. And that actually a lot of his OCD was possibly poor management of this disease, which is that he just couldn't physically handle putting on clothes. Mm -hmm. It was too painful to him mm. to do that. And it's even now a common thing that 
patients with this will watch a lot of films to distract themselves from the pain. It's actually one of the number one ways that people self-medicate hmm. this particular disease. He continued moving from hotel to hotel. He had a lot of weird things. He would only pick up stuff using tissues. He stored his urine in bottles. Um, the last four years of his life, he spent exclusively in the penthouse of the Xanadu Beach Resort and Marina. And he is reported to have died on April 5th, 1976, at 1.27 on board an aircraft, which seems fitting. Mm -hmm. um, he was en route from his penthouse to the Methodist Hospital in Houston. Um, when he died, he was practically unrecognizable. His hair, beard, fingernails were long. He was six foot four and weighed barely 90 pounds. And the FBI actually had to use fingerprints to identify the body. Wow. Even though he was Howard Hughes, was Howard Hughes and died on a plane. It wasn't like they were identifying. Yeah. It was just he was so ill. A subsequent autopsy recorded kidney failure as his major cause of death. He was in extremely poor physical condition. He was suffering from malnutrition and covered in bed sores. His other internal organs, including his brain, had no visible damage or sign of illness. Um, X-rays have revealed five broken off hypodermic needles in his arms. Mm. He used glass syringes with metal needles to inject the codeine. Uh -huh. And they were famous for breaking off in their arms and he mm. didn't bother to get anyone to. Yikes. Um, he's buried next to his parents in Glenwood Cemetery in Houston. Then there was a whole thing about all his estate and how he didn't leave a proper will. And <laughs> Did he have any family that he would have left it to? Because he didn't have any children, right? No, and it was split between... I want to say like a whole load of nieces and nephews and stuff, um, or cousins, cousins. So he didn't have any siblings. I don't think he had any siblings that I read about. But uh, one of the more interesting conspiracy theories I read about was that shortly after his death, a Mormon church produced a will from him that left 40% of his wealth to this random dude. Mm -hmm. um, now, the random dude said that he had picked up a man on the side of the road who looked in terrible condition, who'd identified himself as Hughes, but hadn't. the man had not thought that he was the famous Howard gotcha. Hughes because he was like a bum on the side of the road. Mm -hmm. um, and he'd driven him to a hotel that the man had asked to go to, and that a few months later this piece of paper had showed up, and he just held on to it, and mm. he gave it to a church for safekeeping. Anyway... Um, the will was found to be unconstitutional, I guess, or not valid. I don't think they thought it was fraud. That didn't seem to be the major... But it was illegitimate for some other reason? Yeah. Some, like, lawyer, something or other? So it got split. So then he had no will at all. So it just got split according to the law. Yeah. Um, There was a lot of stuff about what the government owned because they'd paid for stuff during the war, mm -hmm. how much of it had to be paid in... It was a whole thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about airlines. Yeah. But. Uh, barely. Barely. <laughs> well, I talked a bit about airlines. But his whole obsession was. Aviation. Aviation. Yeah. From start to finish. And he brought it forward, both air, air aviation for the military, like satellite aviation, mm -hmm. rockets, everything. He just brought forward yeah. in leaps and bounds. Yeah. It sounds like it. It's a pretty awesome guy. And not a dish. Not too much of a douche. Maybe not. I mean, by all accounts, than... not too much of a douche except for that guy he hit with his car. Yeah. And the... well, Matthew Broderick hit a guy with his car too. And 
Yeah. He's generally an okay guy. That's what you think. Great. And assuming that he didn't actually defraud the government out of a whole load of money. That's fine. I'm okay with that. Okay, so we're good. So well, general as, consensus. As long as he didn't defraud the taxpayer, I guess what she absolutely would have done because taxpayer dollars would have paid for that plane. But fingers crossed. Well, I kind of, my whole thing when I went into it was like, oh, this is going to be a really poor version of like a miserable human compared <laughs> to Amelia Earhart, yeah. who was like the Just darling. Epic. But he wasn't. He was a pretty he was good pretty guy. He okay, yeah. Himself. Yeah. All right, now let's talk about the blimp because I'm, I'm so go. excited to what? learn about Hindenburg. Okay, so tell me, I want to hear about the blimp and the Hindenburg. Go, <laughs> go, I want to know. We're going to talk about airships and dirigio- dirigible balloons first. Okay. Because that's what the Hindenburg was. Dirigible? Dirigible. Yeah, that's an aircraft, lighter than air aircraft, which is different than an airplane. So for Adam's aircraft, we are being apparently joined by Ben. Because Ben looked at me funny when I said lighter than air aircraft. Listen, there's no such thing. That's what they're called. You can't be lighter than air. That's what they're called. You'd never get back to the ground. But they do. They use... Okay, so the way that those aircraft get back to the ground, right, is they slowly release their lifting gas. Their what gas? Lifting gas. So gas that lifts. Yeah, as the name suggests, it is the gas that lifts the aircraft. And when they get to a certain point, when the airship gets to its mooring point, it drops the ropes down. It, like, lets enough out that it's hovering, like, 300 feet above the ground. Those ropes go into winches, and men or women on the ground, men, because it was the 30s, winch the ship back to Earth. Cool. And that's how dirigible balloons work. Dirigible. Dirigible. (laughs) I don't know what that word means, but it was on the Wikipedia article about airships. Dirigible, yes. We should put this on the Instagram. There was a balloon developed in France, because the French are really into balloon, like into these blimps. Well, you can learn all about it next week on your trip to France. they had something called the I don't know how to say balloon in French. I think it's just ballon or something, but it's the Poisson balloon. And it's just a, a blimp that looks like a fish. And it was on all their postage stamps in like the 30s. or the. Oh, 1800s. I think I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, they're hysterical looking. Right, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Thanks, right, Ben. Bye. Thanks for thanks for being here. <laughs> we'll see you next week for History Through a House. <laughs> so I wasn't expecting to explain how those balloons worked, but that's basically how okay. these things work. Dirig- Air- Sorry, were you going to say something? I was going to say, I'm interested to see how much of that comes out. Hopefully that explanation. It does sort of fit into some stuff. Yeah. Dirigeridoo balloons <laughs> or airships were highly popular pre-World War II. Okay. I got a few dates here of some spectacular things. In 1795, Jean-Pierre Blanchard crossed the channel, which is pretty significant, in a balloon. In 1852, Henri Gifford performed the first engine-powered flight in a balloon. It was only 17 miles, but... Hey, it was still 17 times what (laughs) Spruce Goose did. In 1863, Solomon Andrews offered one to the U.S. military to use during the Civil War. They were used for, like, reconnaissance. That's sort of what they were used for in wartime after that. They were used for reconnaissance? Yeah. Because they're subtle? No. So (laughs) we'll go into that a little bit once we get into, like, World War I, World War II stuff. Were these hot air balloons or were these actual they're like different. gas? They balloons? are different. They're, okay. they're they're filled with a lifting gas. Okay. Some of them, I think, the one that crossed the channel was a hot air balloon, okay. but it's sort of like that leads to okay. air filled or gas filled balloons. Okay. In 1888, the Campbell airship, which was developed by Professor Peter C. Campbell, was lost at sea in 18 was built in 1888 and lost at sea in 1889 oh. with a professor on board. So not totally great. No, although but, it sounds like the beginning of a children's adventure. It was up. Yeah, or... And between 1888 and 1897, there were three built by Frederick Wolfert with petrol motors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one exploded, and it killed two people. 
Mm-hmm. So they don't have a superstellar reputation. No, aircraft in general, it sounds like in the 30s and 40s, you might just want to avoid. <laughs> yeah. Although if you saw the interior of the Hindenburg, which I have seen pictures of, the it looked beautiful. I know. So were these like planes that Hughes was flying? Yeah, they were... they're like, it's like the tight, when you see pictures of the interior mm-hmm. of the Titanic, you're like, I want to, I want to be on that. I want to be involved in I this. know, I know. Some of the like Pan Am flights, I mean, I watched that show Pan Am. Mm-hmm. And like they were so glamorous, and yeah. people used to wear like pillbox hats oh, to fly. Oh, so expensive and, to like... fly in a in a in a blimp, though. Oh, I no. think I saw one report that the tickets were four hundred dollars at in like the thirties, which in today's money is like seven or seven to nine thousand dollars. Yeah, to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. That's so cool, though. Yeah, it would be. And really only cool. a small chance of dying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, outside of the ones that I've given you, relatively safe as an aircraft. Okay. Um. And more uses in World War One, they were used as scouting and bombing apparatus by by Germany specifically, but to middling effect. Obviously, it's a big blimp. <laughs> you, so what what they found was that like if a, an aircraft weighs less than air, big air quotes yeah. weighs less than air. If you put a hole in it, it doesn't really cause it to sink to fall to ground. Okay. But the Brits were very smart and found very quickly that fire is super effective against hydrogen, which is what these blimps were filled of. And if you hit one with any sort of incendiary, anything, okay. they would just explode. So the Germans were sort of like at a certain point, like this is maybe not a great idea. Okay. In between World War One and World War Two, they were used as commercial transport, passenger, dealies. Mm-hmm. They could carry more people and were more comfortable than contemporary airplanes. That makes sense. Uh, including private cabins, observation decks, and dining rooms. Like a train. Oh, yeah, because of course they would be flying, because we just talked about pressurized cabins coming in. Mm-hmm. They weren't pressurized, so no. they would have been able to actually yeah. go outside. Yeah, and they and because they, they could they could fly so low, so much lower, um, obviously, than they had to. And they were so much slower that you'd spend like four days on an airship, and so you'd have to have all the amenities of like an ocean liner, basically. But they were quicker than a ship. Yes, much quicker than a ship. Okay. Much quicker than a ship. That, yeah, that they're more You're total, totally selling these to me right now. They're amazing. And that's good because there's some there's some good news then for you. OK, they're more energy efficient than airplanes mm-hmm. and faster than an ocean liner. Mm-hmm. However, the crew often outnumbered passengers. I saw that listed as like one negative thing. That sounds like my kind of place, which honestly, like that probably just means that there are people like doting on you, yes. like like people serving you food or bringing you drinks. Totally. So a lot of these a lot of these also included bars. A lot of these air, like airships did. Four days on the air, I hope <laughs> yeah, they included yeah, a bar. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a background. And now we'll get to the LZ-129 Hindenburg. Yay. It was a commercial passenger carrying airship, including passengers' quarters, large public rooms, dining rooms, lounges, riding rooms, and paintings of the the airship's previous flights on the walls. It's absolutely beautiful. Pictures will go up on the Instagram. Into paintings the of the air flight's previous so, flights? So like, I, I'm guessing that... Because it had one long season of flights before the the disaster, okay. which we'll get to. I don't know if they were painted afterward or if they had just assumed what flights they were going to be doing. Because um, as we'll get into, this blimp took a lot of 1940s Germans to South America. <laughs> um, so they that might that might have just been the the where they were expecting <laughs> to go. I was a, my my picture was like. A blimp and then just like an ocean below <laughs> in various different continents and calling that different trips. Well, no, so now like, I have a blimp with an ocean below and a whole load of Nazis standing <laughs> on deck. So, um, and there was, there were like, 
they're big like panoramic paintings yeah. on the walls okay. like, of the globe and stuff. And I'm, I'm assuming they painted the map of the world and then tracked the the flights afterward. I don't know. Okay, I'm the assuming painting... this is not the point of the story. No. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. It was also equipped with long windows, and the flights were so smooth that passengers often missed the takeoff. And if you've ever been on an airplane, you definitely don't miss takeoff. No, you don't. It's miserable. But these sound, yeah, glorious. And were apparently so smooth in the air that you could stand a pencil up on a table and it wouldn't fall over. Because they move so slowly. They only move at like 45 when or 50. When are you standing the pencil up on? On a table, because they had like dining rooms and stuff. No, but why... I mean, like on the flat end with the rubber? I'm, as, not... I'm assuming a better uh, like analogy, or not analogy, but example would be you don't spill your wine glass. Much more important. <laughs> no turbulence, I assume, because no. they were generally well, flying. So much lower than, so much yeah. lower in the air. And they were, like I said, I think recent, like newer blimps that are being developed can move up to 75 miles an hour, which not super quick, but these were moving at like 40 to 50 miles an hour. What happens if they ran into like weather over the ocean? Um, so generally they were, so from what I read, and yeah. there are some examples of Hindenburg and its sister Zeppelin, the Graf Zeppelin, were, yeah. were doing a lot of transatlantic flights between Germany and South America. Yeah, best way to transport your Nazis. And they'd get struck by lightning more often than, and be fine, totally fine, because they're not going to conduct the electricity in the same way that like, if, cause they're not grounded. So it just sort of disperses around. No, but I just think aircraft. if you were to hold... Like, a balloon say, a balloon up in the air, up in the air you would get, so there's still, it, it was windy, you're going to get, pretty, like... They're still pretty hefty. Like, they're still pretty, like, they're not insignificant machines. They're, yeah. The Hindenburg was built out of, I think, 15, like, Ferris wheels that were then stretched over with canvas. Like, just big circles. Okay. Smaller, getting bigger in the middle, and then smaller okay. again on the end, and then wrapped with canvas okay. with, like, air pockets. So okay. they're not, like, insignificant yeah. air things, but they... I think there were some cases where, like, they were buffeted around a little when bit. People spilled that wine. Yeah, which which is the maybe the worst thing that could happen to you on on your flight. Other than what we're about to. So an important thing to mention is the hydrogen versus helium discussion, which comes up every time you talk about an airship. Oh, sure. Helium is much safer mm -hmm. uh, because it's less combustible than hydrogen is. Right. And height, but hydrogen is much cheaper. Helium is a very rare gas to find naturally. Okay. Hydrogen you can just sort of find anywhere. Okay. And due to the Germans using the blimps in World War One, uh, the Helium Control Act of 19- So this is World War One. This is, yeah, this is, I'm still in World War One right Did now. Did they transport them to South Africa in World War One? No. Oh, was, okay, this cool. Is that was this is in, okay. This is, that's interwar. That's okay. like the, like 37, but okay. like still Hitler is coming into power yeah. at that, at that time. Okay. Um, so in the Helium Control Act of 1927, basically the U.S. found that it had a ton of helium in the country occurring naturally, and they refused to export it to Germany because okay. after World War One, Germany had their air, their yeah. Uh, yeah, all of their military stuff was shut down, and like the U.S. was like, we're not sending yeah. you anything that could help you build these things. Yeah. So because of this, the Germ the Germans decide to build the Hindenburg outfitted to run hydrogen. Yeah. Okay. Before the Hindenburg. German blimps had had no history of hydrogen-related accidents. Okay. So they were like, we're great engineers. Okay. We can build this thing and it'll be totally safe. Construction started in 1931 and five years later, on March 4th, 1936, the Hindenburg took its maiden voyage with 86 passengers and crew. It was operated by the Deutsche Zeppelin Reader, which was established by Hermann Goering. I can never pronounce his Goering. Goering. Uh, to increase Nazi influence over the airship industry. Like anything, anything with Goering's no gotta, good. is got to be like. No good. Mm -hmm. So the blimp wasn't built for the Nazis, but Goering was like, we're going to put this 
branch of the government here to fly this to increase our obviously our propaganda machine. Yes. Because that was his thing. Um, say what you want about the Nazis, and there's a lot of stuff that I they're really terrible. would like to hey, say terrible and on air them. right now with a lot of swear words. <laughs> However, they did manage to completely take over an entire country. They managed many entire countries yeah. from fairly much nothing, and they did have very good engineering and technological. Yeah, but, I mean they really did. But the the like I said, the Hindenburg wasn't built for them, wasn't built by them. Okay, it just ended up being a a a part of that like a cog in, a cog in the machine, just like the Gulf. Yeah. This maiden voyage was called the Die Deutschenlandfahrt. German, very funny. Have word fart. <laughs> means go. There's a flight around Germany that took four days, uh, around 6,600 kilometers, and it ended up being a propaganda flight okay. with them dropping, because of the Reich, the Reichstag, Reichstag, that was the, the when Hitler was elected, yeah. chancellor or whatever. And so they were dropping pamphlets okay. and they were like playing martial parade music over the speakers. And it flew, it did this flight with its sister blimp, the Graf Zeppelin. Okay. After this, uh, it took its first commercial flight, transatlantic, leaving Lewenthal and landing in Rio de Janeiro. It was flown by Hugo Heckner, uh, sorry, Eckner, Hugo Eckner, and he was also the pilot during the D. Deutschlandfahrt. He opposed using the Zeppelins for propaganda, and he refused to give special appeal and support of Hitler during the Reichstag campaign. Yay, go him. So during, good guy. Yeah, good guy. Uh, so during this flight, he was bumped from captain to supervisor because he openly opposed Hitler and would no longer be mentioned in publication or have his picture printed in the motherland. Well, in that case, or the go him. Big props. Yay. The media blacklist lasted for a month. I just thought it was interesting yeah. that, they, that they mentioned that. After this, this opens the 1936 transatlantic season where the Hindenburg completed 10 trips to the U.S. and six to Brazil. In July, it was a, in July of 1936, the Hindenburg set the record for the first Atlantic round trip from Frankfurt to Lakehurst, New Jersey, in 98 hours and 28 minutes. In that year, it flew 191,583 miles, carried 2,789 passengers, and 160 tons of freight and mail. Ooh. Very successful yeah. season. Did its job. Unfortunately... That was where it is. That gets us right into the final flight. The Hindenburg left Frankfurt on May 3rd, 1937. It was a relatively unremarkable flight. It was just going back to Lakehurst, which was a very popular mooring site for for Blimps specifically. Also very near to where my husband grew up. Mm. Yeah, we'd go there on a school trip. Oh, it's like the it's like the home place of air travel or something. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> it arrived in Lakehurst, New Jersey on May 6th. So it's about a three-day trip from Germany. Actually, to... actually no. It's not, the, it's not the home of air travel. What's it called? It's like, it, Lakehurst has like a designation for it. Does it? For air travel, yeah. I didn't oh. write it down because it didn't seem important. I always thought it was Kitty Hawk. But, but now, I'm getting, now I'm getting grilled for it. So North Carolina... So Ohio is the birthplace of aviation Whoa. because the Orvilles are from Ohio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then North Carolina has some other thing. And we often get, we, we big air quotes, Ohioans and North <laughs> or South Carolinans also often have a debate about which state is actually the birthplace of aviation. Not important to this conversation. But which one is it? It's Ohio. Okay. I would just like to also point out the aviation was almost squat until Californians picked up on it. And then they saw massive increases. And since I lived in California for six years, for this moment, I'm going to fight the California but, race. Uh, but, the, but the Orvilles were, were born in Ohio and they flew the first, air, they built and flew the first airplanes. Where did they fly it? 
out of North Carolina. <laughs> anyway. I don't get it because Ohio is like just as flat, if not flatter than North Carolina. I, I might have had something to do with funding. I'm honestly not sure. We'll go into that maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the funding of aviation. I'll do the, the Lakewood thing real quick. Oh, yeah, please. Lakehurst. So it arrived in Lakehurst, New Jersey on May 6th. Captain Max Pruss was aware of inclement weather near the landing site and decided to take passengers on a tour of New Jersey seasides, which sounds kind of nice from the air. Because they fly low enough. Again, you can see basically everything. Yes, but if the weather's bad, why wouldn't you try and get it on the ground as quickly as possible versus just flying around more? Because I had enough gas. Okay. I'm sorry. If I'd been on a plane for four days and then they were like... (laughs) But also... We're going to expand this. It doesn't run out of gas because it just stays in the yeah. pockets. So hard to say. But I think he just, I, I, these people were very well-to-do, very They weren't wealthy. on a time crunch. I would very much doubt it. Okay, so they're just having a trip around New Jersey. Yeah, and at 6.22 p.m. The armpit of the country. At 6, <laughs> that's Florida. Oh, sorry. At 6.22 p.m. The, at 6.22 p.m. on May 6th, the landing was now half a day delayed. So imagine being <laughs> on a plane for an extra 12 hours. It would be so bad. The captain heads back to Lakehurst to, okay. to moor the, the blimp. At 7 p.m., the Hindenburg prepares to moor at, at, the, at the mooring site. And between 7 p.m. and 7.25, everything just hits the fan. Okay. Witnesses claim to see fabric fluttering as if gas was leaking out of one of the... Out of one of the pockets. But as you said, that's not the end of the world, is it? No. No, it is when it's hydrogen, though, and it's highly flammable. Witnesses also claim to see a dim flame, either a buildup of static or St. Elmo's fire. And some people also heard... What's St. Elmo's fire? It's when... uh, it's I, I want to say it's like spontaneous combustion. It's also a really good song. Okay. That's unrelated and maybe a little bit Ooh, spontaneous combustion. I should do that for a time. Um, I don't don't want to say it's spontaneous. I think it's caused by static buildup. There's a movie. Yeah, ben, but, are you back with Lake? Yeah, would you figure out Lakehurst? No. Oh, great. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> I did, but I didn't say anything. It's just said on the Wikipedia page. There's like a big monument there. And some witnesses claim to have heard a, mu- a muffled detonation, which would have been the gas igniting. Because okay. when hydrogen explodes, it explodes very, very violently. There's a disagreement about where the fire started, but as the tail crashed into the ground, it killed nine crew members. The hydrogen was consumed very quickly, but the diesel then burned for hours. And I should mention at this point, the Hindenburg was about 300 feet off the ground. So a lot of the fatalities, there were a lot of people who died in the initial explosion and then in the hospital afterward. But some people in desperation, like threw themselves off of the blimp and died when they hit the ground. The, the, the disaster caused 35 fatalities of 13 passengers and 12 crewmen out of a total of 97. So all in all... I actually thought everyone had died. I also thought that. So all more people survived than died. Okay. Um, and it was also only carrying half of the people it could have. Okay. So it could have been terrible, horrible way for this many people to lose their lives. All in all, more people escaped than didn't. Okay. I, I thought it was like a whole thing. I, I, I thought it was like the Titanic. I basically just yeah. thought it was the air Titanic. Yeah. Still, still nothing on Lakehurst. There should be a picture of a monument. Lakehurst, New Jersey. On the Wikipedia. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll get better. Please do. Uh, Addison Bain, who works for NASA, she's part of the National Hydrogen Association, provided a equation for how quickly the Hindenburg would have been engulfed in flame. And she gave it 49 feet a second spread rate, which meant that the entire Hindenburg was destroyed in 16 seconds. Whoa. While it was 300 feet in the air. Whoa. Because it would have just been a big ball of hydrogen that yeah, way. And, okay. it w- and it's just canvas 
So it says Airship Capital of the World. That's the guy. Yep, Lakehurst, New Jersey, Airship Capital of the World. It's a weird... It's a very weird claim to fame. Apparently they built other airships there. Yeah, it was a very popular mooring place for some reason. I'm guessing because it's so close to New York. Because they had a mooring site on the Empire State Building. You were... If blimps had still been, were still flying today commercially, you would have been able to fly to the top of the Empire State Building more and then exit onto like the observation deck. But they found that like, since the Empire State Building is so high, whenever they did any experiment, the mooring was damaged as well as like any way for a passenger to leave. So like, maybe we won't do that. Because it was so high up? Yeah, because the, the, it's so much windier. Cool idea. Good on paper, bad in practice. Yeah, okay. They 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 built they built the airship the Shenandoah there. Yeah, I did oh, read cool. that. Yeah. There's another one called the Los Angeles and a fourth one called a third one called the Akron. Yep. That one crashed and it killed everyone on board. Why Akron? Akron's in Ohio. I don't know. Okay, good job. Cool. <laughs> um, There's some aviation stuff in Akron. So, every time uh, sorry for being in the podcast. <laughs> but every time every time I see the Hindenburg, mm-hmm. big old swastikas on it. So, yeah, so when when they flew it and they did outfit it with the Hindenburg in like the Third Reich, like, um, you know, when you like see images of the Third Reich written out, it's got like the crazy like serifs on it. Yeah. They did paint that on the side of the, Was of it, the Hindenburg. Because did it still have that when it went up? When it exploded? No, I don't think so because they painted it for the Olympics in Germany. Okay, 36, the, right? Yeah, which Those would have Olympics. taken place in Berlin. And then I think all of that was taken off when it became a commercial passenger thing. In retrospect, good marketing. Yeah. Take off the Nazi Well, that's, that's like good, a Goodyear still flies a blimp. Yeah. Um, oh, Goodyear. That's also in Akron, I think. That makes sense. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, I don't think it had the swastikas when it exploded. Because I don't think, even though America wasn't involved in the war yet, don't think they would have been super stoked to see big swastikas flying into New Jersey. Oh, although I don't think in 36 anyone had any idea what was coming down the pipeline. No, that's fair. That's fair. Because Hitler had just been elected. Yeah, like that was still way pre. Anyway, this is a tangential, not okay. really important. <laughs> We're going to get into what possibly caused the ignition. There are several theories. I'm going to get into the conspiracy theory E1 because it's the most discredited at okay. this point. There's the sabotage theory because obviously that something like this happens. There's going to be conspiracies. Yeah. So this is the sag- the sabotage, sabotage sabotage theory. The sabotage theory people, of the didgeridoo. People basically say dirigible balloons were too historically safe to combust in such a way. Unless they were tampered with, okay. they didn't explode. They okay. would get knocked off course and crash into the ocean. That's what the USS Akron, that's what happened to the USS Akron. It was okay. knocked off course and crashed into the ocean and stuff like that. But it very, unless the gas escaped and came into contact with a spark or someone set like an explosion, hydrogen wouldn't explode this way, like by yeah. itself. Commander Charles Rosendahl and Max Proust were both big proponents of this. They, uh, they both said that these kind of airships were often struck by lightning and were unaffected. So there were a lot of names thrown around as to who could be the possible saboteur. One was a survivor. His name was Joseph Spa. Uh, he apparently had a German shepherd on the, the blimp that he was taking back to his children as a gift and took many unaccompanied trips to feed it, like more than you would need to over the course of four days. Okay. It's four days. People are probably just stretching their legs. Maybe I think they, they like their dog. I think they were just throwing spaghetti at the wall. Okay. He also openly voiced anti-Nazi opinions. Okay. And seemed agitated that the flight would be delayed, which after four and a half days, including a 12-hour delay, like you said, probably anyone would have been. Yeah, okay. So this is very weak. It's very thin. Yeah, because I mean, I'd go see my dog more than it is specifically needed yeah. feeding. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Someone named A.A. A. Holing? 
I'm assuming he's German. <laughs> I probably completely butchered his name. Wrote a book called Who Destroyed the Hindenburg. Put the blame on a crew member and rigger, Eric Spell, who apparently had a communist girlfriend, which in the 30s was not akin a, to being a murderer. Yeah, uh, and also had anti-Nazi connections. He, the author claims that the origin of the fire was near Spell's working area and that only riggers were allowed in there. And since he was the only rigger with these big air quotes apparent yeah, yeah, yeah. opinions, he obviously must have done it. He also claims that Spell's amateur interest in photography means that he could have used a flash bulb to set off the okay. hydrogen, but there's no evidence of there being like a charge set. Did he die? Yeah, he, okay. he perished in the explosion. Um, and then when the FBI was doing their federal in investigation, they found a yellow substance near the ignition site. And the author, the author of the book, without any FBI intelligence, postulated that it was sulfur, that the sulfur was used to set off the hydrogen. Okay. But it was really just residue from a fire extinguisher. Oh, okay. So more likely, this man saw that the ship was on fire and tried then tried to, to put it. the fire out okay. and then was blamed as being a... An communist murderer. Obviously being dead, he had no way of... That's why I asked, because I'm like, if they'd interrogated him, they would have had a... Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, But no. But yeah, so the sabotage is now widely discredited. It's more likely that the explosion was caused by a static spark or maybe just like dry lightning. Yeah, okay. So, yep. okay, so I know that at least one show I watch mm -hmm. has it one bad supernatural show i don't know if it's supernatural Does supernatural do an episode on the handbook no are you talking about like the time traveling show where they like go back in time to stop bad things from happening that is what it is because i've seen that episode and as they well. shoot someone shoots the balloon and that's why yes. it explodes is yeah. that right yeah it's the pilot of what though it's like time travel team not time team the library no it's a terrible show yeah it's anyway. absolutely maybe we'll have to watch it and see if yeah but she so it's but, <laughs> um but there's also another i thought i'd seen something else where it was something to do with static on the mooring ropes yes um that i do believe yeah so the static is that a theory i think it is yeah because the friction from the ropes as but it, i don't think that the, but if they've done it this many times surely but the hydrogen was was escaping through uh had to have been escaping through a hole in the air bubbles for it for the static to even affect and surely the static's on the lower half and the gas is on the top yeah so, so we're talking the, a so the the ship went like butt end down first. Okay. Um, after it exploded or exploded, and then like fire shot out of the nose. So I don't, I'm not sure. I know that static on the mooring ropes is definitely a theory. Okay. Or St. Elmo's fire, which I probably should have looked up because it seems to be a pretty common theory here as well. Okay. But there is also a theory that maybe it wasn't hydrogen gas, that like it could have been something else because that, that, that woman I talked about, the one who worked for NASA, yeah. who gave the destruction time of the Hindenburg yeah, yeah. an equation, also had the ignitable paint theory. It's called the IPT. Okay. And that is that the some of the paint on the Hindenburg might have been flammable. And that's actually what caused that somehow that paint was ignited and then the they caused yeah. the, the hydrogen to heat up and explode. Okay. Several okay. theories. Okay. Um, despite wh whatever caused the explosion, it is probably something more like static spark. Static buildup somewhere, leaking hydrogen, yeah. just bad luck on German engineering, basically, it sounds like. This was the fall of the airship. There had been one too many high-profile airships. Go down. Yeah. like that. Statistically, did you find out whether it's safer than normal air travel? It seemed to be, because from the late 1800s to basically the beginning of World War II, when they were still using them as commercial passenger, yeah. there weren't many, like, horrible crashes um i'm not sure if that's because i wasn't looking at a 
wide enough list or if I only included like Western, like, you know yeah. what I mean? I don't know what countries it included. Because they did that with Concord. Because Concord had like one horrific accident mm-hmm. and they totally shut down Concord. But actually, plane versus crashes. So what, what also ends up happening, I read an article from Popular Mechanic about this. Mm-hmm. It would have died out anyway. Okay. Because at this point, fossil fuels were becoming very cheap to okay. produce and exploit. And so airplanes were becoming more efficient and people, I think it was just a a natural decline that was rapid, that was made more rapid because of this disaster. So it was once a very popular mode of transportation. And then due to all of these high profile crashes and the fact that airplanes were becoming safer, more efficient, cheaper. Yeah. It just, it was just the end of the airship. However, there may be a glimmer of hope. Cause I'm kind of liking airships. There, There may be a glimmer of hope. So we may have a modern resurgence. Of, okay. of blimps, maybe not yet as commercial passenger ships. Okay. So this is from an article I read in Popular Popular Mechanic. Okay. Titled "Airships Haven't Been Able to Get Back Off the Ground Until Now." This was written by Star Varden. I really hope I wrote that down correctly. This article was published on March 13th of this year. Oh, wow! So there are strides moving forward. We're looking at modern applications of blimps. They are, again, as we said, more energy efficient than modern airplanes and faster than ocean liners. So freighting companies are considering using them for delivery purposes. Okay. For things that don't need to get places quickly. Yeah. And we can sort of phase out ocean liners and replace them with mm-hmm. blimps. This could cut back on 3% of carbon emissions. Uh, because Pretty good. Because, plane, because although blimps are slower than planes, they are much more energy efficient because yeah. they don't really burn anything. Yeah. They also require a lot less infrastructure than an airplane because a plane requires a runway. It requires, like, I'm not saying oh, okay. blimps wouldn't require a terminal, but they require, ter- they requ- I yeah. mean, like, the size of, like, Heathrow or Dulles Airport or Reagan okay. is, like, it's like a city. Yeah. And it produces, it uses that much electricity. Yeah. It, it also has all of these tie-ins yeah. to carbon emissions. But blimps, because they would have the city on board, you were basically Well, blimps just- can just land anywhere. Yeah. Okay. They can land on water. Yeah. Okay. Um, they can land in places where, so, if, like, if... If you couldn't land a plane in a mountainous area, let's say like a poor village that needed some sort of aid, you could get a blimp there much more easily because they can land on almost anything. Okay. Yeah, because you basically just need like a singular point that it can moor to. So they're not even they're not even considering mooring anymore because mooring's kind of dangerous. Okay. So they're talking about implementing like hovercraft technology, which would basically disperse the weight of the aircraft around like as it's landing. Yeah, and then it would just create like an air pocket underneath it, and it would just sort of bounce. And then once it landed, it would have these little tendrils that come out of the the like landing things, and that would allow it to ride over small like debris. Okay. So you could even pilot them on the ground after they landed. Cool. Then you wouldn't like basically wouldn't need five different two mile. Oh yeah, like roads. Trips. Yeah, exactly. Plus yeah. Then all the stuff for the taxi. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they're just a lot more efficient in almost every single way. Have they sorted out the fuel problem? You mean the fact the fact that hydrogen explodes very violently and helium's really expensive? Not that I had seen. Okay. Um, yeah, but there's a similar issue that you have with, with you know jet fuel. It's yeah. also very flammable. Yeah. And is prone to explode. Yeah. Very <laughs> right, bye. I'm done. Bye. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure what they're... This is apparently the most interesting topic we've ever covered. Ben's covered because Ben is like fascinated by what we're doing. Ben sat. For those of you who don't know, sat in the office for our entire recording session last week didn't say a single word no. <laughs> several times he sat yeah. in the office for the entire session yeah. and this one he's like so this, all about this is all super cool like yeah I think it this is, is cool. really exciting because yeah. it would 
it would allow for freighting and there you can make them gigantic like you can make them 60 times bigger than an like an ocean liner that would be really cool and so they're just they just they're, they can just carry more so they mention a company in france called the flying whales it's capable of carrying 60 that's a great name for yeah Oakland. and they look like it too we'll put yeah. a picture somewhere okay. um they're just Dude, you're so doing that in France. It's going to be like one of your major <laughs> jobs is to do our Instagram in France. That's fine. Capable of carrying 60 tons of freight at once, which is a massive amount of freight. So the reason the reason I'm, I'm a slightly more interested, I read a book called Leviathan, uh-huh. and it was sort of like... Are you, is your mic on? Yeah, I turned it on just for this bit. Great. Sorry. Thank um, you for hijacking our podcast. It's like, it's like biogenetics. So it's World War One. Uh-huh. But the... Allied forces are, oh, what's it? What's it called? It's steampunk. It's, called? it's steampunk. Oh, yeah. And then the <laughs> that's my least favorite genre of thing. No, I'm sorry. The Axis is steampunk. Okay. The Allied forces are like biogeneticists. Okay. So it's called Leviathan because their airships are actually like converted whales. Oh. Whales that create their own hydrogen. Oh. And then float, whereas like the Axis powers have Zeppelin. Yeah. Like like goblin airships and like mechs. And Interesting. Like, like mech. Yeah, I understood what you meant. Like Gundam. Okay. Like Gundam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. I I read the first. Two. I haven't read the third one. There's but. three. Yeah, seems like a lot of steam. I think we try to get the rights to it. In another world, in another life. Yeah, seems we like should, we should start. We should start a balloon company. <laughs> Sounds like too much <laughs> steampunk. Okay. All right, bye. So these French whales are capable of carrying sixty tons, and they don't need to land. Um, they're actually designed to hover about hundred and sixty feet. Above a drop-off point, and you. I've can... just realized a major issue with me and these things. Firstly, I've never wanted to go on a cruise, and these do sound like shorter cruises. They would be, yeah. Um, and secondly, they're in the air, and I'm really scared of heights. I mean, it still sounds preferable to a plane. Honestly, I don't mind taking like a slower. I mean, honestly, if I had to fly, if the flight had taken me four days to get here, I probably would have thrown myself off of the blimp because I was already in I, my delay in Canada was absolutely miserable. No, that's what I mean. Like I. But like, I do think that like. I think I maybe I would take a blimp to the States if it was safe. Yeah, and it sounds like they would be relatively because, safe. Honestly, it's like 12 hours anyway or whatever. Yeah. And it's really boring. So to make it four days and give me restaurants, drinks, and casinos. Yeah. And I just imagine it calls. would be like a, like the airport waiting area. Probably. Like a small getaway. You know why I'd like it? It's because when I have to fly back and forth, it's usually work on either end. Yeah. So it would actually be like a small holiday Oh, in between. In between the two works on either it, side. I think it would be kind of nice. Like if we can get I away on our way to getting away. I definitely away. wouldn't choose to do it for everything. No. Um, but I do think occasionally it would be good. But yeah, so these uh, yeah, these flying whales, they sound pretty neat. And they, like I said, they can land in mountainous areas and they can traverse difficult terrain like pretty easily. Um, uh, there, yeah. are, there are some pictures of them. I'm not sure. I couldn't tell. And this is wild. I couldn't tell if they were like graphic images or real because they looked so real i wasn't sure if it was just like a, oh, really okay. well a rendering done, like concept image but they look really goofy and cute and i like them and i i want them to become a real thing i still okay so i'm kind of with you on all of it mm. i still don't understand how they survive heavy winds across the ocean so they like wouldn't, i just don't understand so they wouldn't the, be buffeted like a sail is that are you thinking that they're like a sail like so like when a boat experiences heavy wind right yeah the sail like bulges the way the wind is blowing and then the ship just goes right off course i'm thinking like if i were holding a helium balloon yep and there's a breeze Mm -hmm. or even if i'm walking Mm -hmm. it drags behind me Mm -hmm. so that helium balloon is more spherical okay blimps are built sort of like football like american footballs so they're a little bit more 
aerodynamic. They can okay. sort of they they don't cut through air like an airplane does, yeah. but they certainly redirect it okay. around. And I think even if you they're so they they were originally built from the tight canvas. I'm assuming they'd be made from some sort of like lightweight, heavy duty yeah. polymer if they were made today. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't like the wind would just sort of I'm assuming would just bounce off of it unless it was like gale force. Wind. Yeah, I think that's what concerns me. It's like if it was super, super heavy wind. Yeah, if it was super, super heavy wind, like once you, I can imagine that once you lose control of one, mm-hmm. regaining control probably a bit more difficult is, than regaining control of an airplane. But then turbulence in an airplane freaks me out. I've been flying since I was a kid. My dad's yeah. a pilot. Like I understand yeah. the realities of it. I understand it's the safest thing. Mm-hmm. Doesn't stop me grabbing Ben's hand when turbulence well, starts to because like because your brain your brain goes to the the worst case absolutely. scenario. Absolutely. But like, uh, so they were talking about blimps were, when they were flying them. They already knew in what season was the best to fly them. They were okay. flying them like following the thermals, mm-hmm. basically. Okay, that makes sense. Like like how a bird would migrate, mm-hmm. basically. And I assume if they saw a major storm coming, um, they would cancel the flight. Yeah. Or, or they because they can land anywhere, they could, they just, could just redirect the flight. Yeah, that's almost true. at like the tip of a hat. That's true. And but then they'd be like, it's going to be an extra. And then, but then, like, how do you? How does the company protect itself if it needs to take an extra day and a half? Yeah. And then it's like, well, we can't really charge these customers the extra day and a half. No. So it'd be, but then I imagine their overhead per day is not. It wouldn't be as high because you're not paying for fuel. You're not paying, you're not paying, for, paying for terminals, yeah. like airports and stuff like you that. You just wait it out somewhere. Yeah, it'd be kind of cool. Yeah, I it I, when I saw the 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 flying whale, I, I imagined it as something that like uh, Elon Musk would be getting his his fingers in like very soon. Yeah, it okay. Very much felt like a Tesla Tesla thing. Yeah, and they, you could run them. I and, think on you could run them on um, solar power. Yeah, and your weather your weather. Radars and stuff have got so much better. They're so accurate. That you're unlikely to. Yeah. Although you're talking four days, five days. So. I mean, you could just get the information as it can. I'm all in this. I think you're going to find that everyone's all in this. I think I was really excited when I saw that article because obviously the Hindenburg was a horrible, horrible disaster. Yes. Although. Not as horrible. But not as horrible as I thought it it was. Um, Oh, I I wanted to mention as well, because I learned this in the article, that the first transatlantic flight was like in 1928. Did I mention that? Oh, yeah, I did. From Frederick Schaffen. No, I didn't. From the first transatlantic flight on a blimp landed yeah. in Lakehurst. So, like, has always been super popular for, for that. But anyway, yeah, but since then, like, since the Hindenburg, blimps have sort of fallen heavily yeah. out of fashion, as most things do when, I mean, it was covered. The Nazis, <laughs> the Nazis had to do with them? Well, no, it was, so it was, co- this landing was covered by everybody. Well, yeah, I mean, this was, the fact of the matter is, as awful as it was, at 35, I can imagine that there's probably been car pileups when more people have left, lost their lives. Oh, yeah. And yet, you know, nearly a hundred years later. It was such a spectacle. The moment you say Hindenburg, everybody knows yeah. what you're talking it is, about. It was such a spectacle. Yeah, so the crash was such a spectacle. I mean, it was so heavily covered. There were news outlets from Germany, France, America. Everyone came out to see the Hindenburg land in New Jersey. And then the Hindenburg. Did I say Lindenburg? No, you said Hindenburg. To see the Hindenburg land. And when it when it crashed, it was just, everyone had it. Everyone heard about it. I mean, Germany tried to like, keep it quiet a little bit <laughs> because they couldn't show that as a kind of weakness, I guess. But yeah. but everyone knew what had happened. And so it, they just sort of fell out of fashion. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was really cool. We have no idea what we're going to be doing for you next week oh, slash tomorrow. tomorrow. <laughs> um, but we will certainly spend the next 24 hours binge reading everything we can. I think we should do something creepy. 
something fantastical. Something fantastical. We've got two that we're going to record in the next two days. I think one should be downright creepy mm-hmm. and one should be downright fantastical. Okay. So we'll come up with some ideas and you will find out what it is next week. Thanks for listening, guys. All right. Don't forget, rate, review, subscribe. Instagram. All right. Once we update it. Once we update it. Okay. Bye. Bye.